This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. And I'll be honest, I'm tired of telling you where to find things are and then them not being there. I told you as we introed last week that it was going to be on Peacock. I went to view it there this morning, and then it moved over to Amazon. So instead of doing that, because these shows live in perpetuity, and uh, a lot of you would listen to these well after the fact of when they're recorded, I'm just going to direct you now to Google where to find everything. If you just simply Google something in on the right-hand side, there's usually a provided information on where you can stream it, or use realgood.com, that's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D.com. There's also an app, a real good app, that you can use and plug in all of your streaming services to be able to find where these things are on, just so that you have an easier time than me apparently screwing it up, and three months from now, it's not on Netflix when it was at the time. So let's just start there. But but quickly, before we get to the show, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website and the show notes. You can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. So... Uh, with that, let's get into the movie. But first, we welcome our first international guest to the show, Joseph Burke, a screenwriter and podcaster. Joseph, how are you? Uh, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Wonderful. So you are a first-time guest. We usually give you a couple of questions. Just first question off the top, tell us about yourself and why you love movies. So I've always, I've always loved movies, but now I'm a screenwriter studying a MA in screenwriting at Falmouth University that's kind of exponentially changed how much I watch films that especially now my, my fiance hates it because I go, oh, I'm just going to go do some work. And she's like, are you going to do work or are you going to go watch a film? And I'm like, but they're the same thing. Like it's research. And so things like that, that it's uh, good in some ways and bad in others. But yeah, I think um, my, my film taste has changed a lot over the years as I've grown up, but I think I've I've always loved film since whatever the first film I ever saw was. I, apparently, my first word was E.T., so I'm assuming that that's, although I, I now say that that's technically an abbreviation, but yeah. Yeah, and being a screenwriter, I know that when we've done the podcast, we kind of look at movies differently. Has being a screenwriter really influenced how you see some of your favorites now? Absolutely. Again, like it, it's really, it's really hard now to not see plot and not see like narrative structure. That I was watching um, Godzilla versus Kong uh, in, in in the cinema, which is is a very good film if you kind of look at it for what it is. But I could all and it was my, my university too when we first started that he was like, I can sit in films now and I can look at my watch. And I'll know what's going to happen within minutes. And it literally was pretty much like, okay, so that's going to happen around now. And then it happened. And I was like, oh. it sort of, in some ways it ruins it. But it's like, 
I'm not allowed to speak during films at home now because I just kind of go, oh, that's going to happen. And don't, don't want to ruin anything for, for, for my family. But yeah, it massively changes how you, how you watch things. It's really hard to, to just enjoy something now. <laughs> so I, I, I'm a little intrigued because I've never seen anybody else who's kind of the same way that I was. As I've gotten older, my tastes have broadened in what I like and enjoy in television, film, and music. And it's supposed to be the other way around. A guy my age is supposed to go, eh, eh, you know, to 90% of everything. Because That's a really unpleasant sound, Dad. Well, it, it sounded a little better than get off my lawn. Okay, but at least that would be rooted in film. So, I mean, is this it, was this something that started before you got into uh, the education aspect of this for your MA, or... Was this something that's derived from that? Yeah, I think I think it's just just growing up that it's kind of maturing. Like I'm thirty, how old am I? Thirty one now, and it was kind of like the stuff that I liked when I was kind of when I first went to university, I guess, or when I was doing my A levels. It was kind of like anything that's a bit different. So things like Breathless all like French New Wave and things because it was like cool and new. And I don't necessarily dislike them films now, but it's kind of like I, I've, I've got to understand my tastes more rather than necessarily what I want people to think that I like some of them. And also just kind of at, like I used to look, like love Tarantino and everything. And to be fair, like I still kind of like it, but not like you say, my, my experience has broadened. Because one of my favorite films when I was a kid was Batman and Robin. That I absolutely adored that film when it first came out. And then as I kind of when I got older, it was kind of like, oh, people really hate that film. Like I wonder why people hate it. And then I rewatched it and went, oh no, it's terrible. But when I was like, however old I was when I first watched it, it was it was magical. So it's kind of like. I don't. I just didn't have a, a filter to th- for things to go through. It was just, oh, that's cool. So, so you don't appreciate all of the Arnold Schwarzenegger ice puns? Well, like I have a stepson, so technically, as as a dad, like the puns are, are the best thing now. That any any chance I get to embarrass him is amazing. So that does lead me into the next obvious question. So then, what is your favorite movie currently, and I guess why? Well, it used to be Eternal Sunshine. And it was every single time anyone would ask, it would be an almost kind of knee-jerk reaction that that's what I would say. Now I think, and I'm going to I'm gonna be that guy, and it's sort of like, it depends on what, like, depends on when you're asking me. Like, one, it depends on what kind of day you get me on. Or it depends on what, what, what I'm looking for. Because, for example, Parasite changed my life when I first saw it. Again, Whiplash also kind of just blew me away. But then there's like there's other films that kind of at that moment, like The Big Lebowski. If I'm looking for like a comedy, it all kind of depends on on what mood I'm in. And I don't think necessarily that there's I think that's really good for this podcast, I guess. But that there's one kind of greatest for me. It all depends on what kind of what day you catch me on. Yeah, I completely understand i i've said repeatedly i have like an a b and c and they all correspond with very specific memories that i have kind of growing up with films so 
it's fine to have more than one or for it to change. I mean, our tastes and uh, we change over time. So then the final question, what do you makes a good movie? For me, there has to be, there has to be something that really is, is rooted in realness, like realism. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be. And especially with what film we're talking about today, that it can't have fantasy elements, but the ones that I kind of turn off from are where it's all fantasy or all something a bit strange and it's all surface and there's no depth to it. So, for example, this week on our podcast, we, we were discussing uh, Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring. And w- one of our kind of hosts hadn't seen it for a very long time and was like, it's ridiculous. And I'm like, yes, it, of course it's ridiculous. Look at the world. But if you look at it, there's there's a lot of depth to it. And it's not just kind of it like it talks about things that realistically it's not overtly saying but underneath it all is what it's actually saying really so i think anything with depth is 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 what makes a good film for me so i just want to add on to that a couple of different things number one i certainly have no problem with fantasy i'm, I'm a superhero nerd uh, i love comic books i love fantasy elements i love all the allegory type stuff and with something like the lord of the rings I have no problem whatsoever because the story structure and the narrative makes sense within the world that they build. It's when you start to do things outside the parameters of the world that you build that I have problems, or you introduce something that wasn't there and is kind of doesn't make sense to the rest of it. I know Dana has some problems more with the fantasy elements, and he'd love to do more historical biographical films than I would. That tends to be his niche is more to the uh, non-fiction side where I've always existed on the fictional side, but I, I completely agree with you on that front end. You know, as long as it has some cohesion, it all makes sense. But since you did mention your podcast, we didn't get the name of it. Uh, if you'd like to plug it quick. Um, it's Clapperboard Climax. So it's me and two of my screenwriter friends from my course. And we essentially created our top 10 films of all time. And then we've, searched high and low for the worst films of all time and we do one one week and then another another so kind of to, to go back to the idea of depth we had a couple of weeks ago we had finding nemo and then the week after we had b movie which i vehemently hated like absolutely because and pro- probably because it was in such close quarters with finding nemo that it was you can have something that is ridiculous like I adore Finding Nemo, and look at that. That's about what it's about. So my problem isn't the fact that it's a film about bees. It's the fact that it's poorly executed, and it doesn't really know what it's trying to say. That it's like, is it anti-corporations? Is it kind of pro-bee? Like, what is it actually trying to say? But yeah, so that's why we kind of try and... So we had a, a... Devil's Rejects, and then the Halloween 2, Rob Zombie, Halloween 2. So we try and kind of keep things close together to be like an easy comparison then as well. We go, okay, so why is this film good and why is this film bad? Rather than it just being, oh, well, we all know it's a bad film. Let's deconstruct it to understand why it's bad. Is Ishtar on your bad list yet? Oh, you beat me to the punch. (laughs) Is what, sorry? Ishtar. Ishtar. No, I... I didn't think it was that bad. Of but... course, you'd be drawn to a very cynical film. 
<laughs> anyway, that was Clapperboard Climax. We will post the uh, show link in our show notes here for this episode. Make sure you check that out. All right, but let's get into Eternal Sunshine here uh, without too much more fanfare. And just first off, Dad, I know that I think we have to cover this with a little bit of an asterisk for you. Just for the audience's sake, I have grown up for 30 years with my father vehemently hating Jim Carrey. So let's just take that one off the top. But this is the first time you and I, either of us, saw this film. I know you would actively try to avoid it. It has been on a, a list of mine of films to watch eventually for a long, long time. I just have never gotten around to seeing it. So I'm glad that we had an excuse to do so. But Joseph, you chose this movie. I think that's where we should probably start. Why Eternal Sunshine? So I, I watched this when I think it was 2006. So a couple of years or a year after it came out. And again, like I'd loved Jim Carrey when I was a kid and having that kind of element to it. And I was studying film studies at A-level at the time, which is like kind of your last year of high school level. I was like 18. And um, just I'd never seen anything quite like it. I'd not seen any of Kaufman's other work at that point. So it was kind of, he's got a very unique way to tell a story. So that kind of drew me in. But also like... I think like most 18 year olds, I was kind of going through that kind of emotional time and some kind of personal issues that I was dealing with. It kind of hit me at the the right note at the right time. And then it became the, the film that I watched when I wanted to cry, essentially. And it was like, I'm upset. I'm not going to kind of try and cheer myself up. And it became sort of like a comfort blanket that it would kind of like I know what bits I'm going to cry at, which I guess we'll probably discuss later. But it, it just became, and I've watched it more times than I can count. I've probably watched it, the, the film I've watched the most. But yeah, I think it's just, every time I watch it, I never regret it. That it's kind of, I put it on and I go, okay, yeah. It's just, yeah, right moment, right time, I think. I certainly wouldn't have wanted to watch this after my most recent breakup for at least a good couple of months because it hits you right in the feels. But, Dad, I know you've said on multiple occasions, and more specifically when we've made commentary, I know we haven't done the episode yet, but No Country for Old Men, your commentary to me has always been you have to be of a certain experience in order to appreciate the film. I think you would have had to have experienced a really wrenching breakup in order to really understand what this film is about. I think that's correct. And um, again, the, the, the you didn't appreciate No Country for Old Men. And I'm like, the last scene, the, the uh, Tommy Lee Jones monologue at the end of the film is everything the film is about. And you have to understand, it's a middle-aged man. The last thing you want to do is end up retired and look back and realize your entire life's work was pointless. And that was his comment. He couldn't win in the end. He couldn't beat the bad guys. But there's also an element of being an old man and having that experience that I'm never going to get, or at least not for another 20 to 30 years. Correct. And I'm just saying, likewise to this one, I think if I had watched this five years ago, I'd probably pass over and be like, all right, that was fine. But experiencing it when you've gone through the the traumatic things, because I remember how many times that I did think of this movie because I knew the premise, 
of erasing memories. And I think anytime you've gone through something traumatic like that, you're wishing in some regard either that you could completely forget it or that it never happened. I don't know if that's healthy, and that's something we're going to get to here in a second. But let's get into more of the the back and forth here, the, the background for everybody else. Do you have your plot summary ready? I do. Excellent. After a fight, Joel Barish, played by Jim Carrey, discovers that his girlfriend, Clementine Krasinski, played by Kate Winslet, has had her memories of him erased by a New York City firm, Lasuna. Heartbroken, he decides to undergo the same procedure. In preparation, he records a tape for Lasuna, recounting his memories of their volatile relationship. As the Lucina employees work on Joel's brain as he sleeps in his apartment, so that he'll wake up in the morning with no memory of Clementine, Joel re-experiences his memories of Clementine as they are erased, starting with their last fight. As he reaches earlier, happier memories, he realizes that he is not one to forget her. They ultimately have to decide if love with pain is better or worse than no love at all. So cast for this movie, Jim Carrey as Joel Barish, Clementine Krasinski, Kirsten Dunst as Mary Svevo, Mark Ruffalo as Stan Fink, Elijah Wood as Patrick Wirtz, Tom Wilkinson as Dr. Howard Merswiak, Jane Addams as Carrie Eakin, and David Cross as Rob Eakin. This was nominated for Best Actress for Kate Winslet and won for Best Original Screenplay for Pierre Bismuth, Michelle Gondry, and Charlie Kaufman. The film developed a cult following in the years after its release and has come to be regarded by many critics as one of the best films of the early 21st century. Did you know? Despite the fact that Charlie Kaufman's script and Michelle Gondry's visual concepts were closely followed, the cast members were allowed many chances to improvise. Elijah Wood and Mark Ruffalo improvised extensively, and much of the dialogue between Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet resulted from videotaped rehearsal sessions, during which the two became close by sharing tales of their real-life relationships and heartbreaks. Did you know? The idea for this film was brought to Michel Gondry by his friend, artist Pierre Bismuth, who suggested, quote, you get a card in the mail that says someone you know has just erased you from their memory. Did you know? Clementine's hair goes through several color changes, blue, orange, red, green, and brown, which seems to be her natural hair color. This helps the viewer keep track of where her relationship with Joel corresponds to the plot. Did you know? In the tape-recorded sessions with Kate Winslet, Jim Carrey accidentally wrecked the tape recorder when he got so much into the scene he threw it across the room. Did you know? The opening credits appear 18 minutes into the film at the end of the first reel. So, what is this movie about? And Joseph, I I don't know if we've really defined this much for the audience or the listening audience when we ask this, but really when we say what is this movie about, more times than not we're either asking how you would pitch the movie, or if you were trying to suggest this to a friend, what would you tell them it's about? Well, I've tried to pitch this film to so many people, and it kind of changes every time. But I would say, I think um, I think what you said before works really well, that it is is no love better than love with pain. and And it's kind of that idea of, it is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all sort of thing. And, and it's about someone finding their, their love again and finding themselves after they're, after they're lost, I think, because of the way narratively it works. I think it's, it's more, a more positive film than 
potentially it seems when you're watching it. Sure. I, I would agree. It seems very Shakespearean in its themes, but dad, what did you have down? I had the same basic, which is, is it better to have loved and lost or to never have loved at all. But also what are the values of our memories, good and bad? You know, I, I it dawned on me while I was watching this, that life is kind of like the old quote from Thomas Edison, who said, you know, I didn't make 99 or 999 mistakes. I only needed one way to invent the light bulb. I had 99 different ways to prove how not to build a light bulb. And I think to some extent, that's what relationships are. We pull the good parts out. We figure out what the bad parts are. And when we go back into another one, we try to find something in the good parts that we're finding in the next relationship and try to eliminate the bad parts. It's like trial and error. Yeah, that seemed to be more of what I focused on coming out of this movie. I know that the love elements are really there, but I kind of went a little bit more grandiose and it really reminded me. So I've been in different forms of therapy for a long time in my life and we are just coming off of the recognition of mental health month last month, at least in the United States. But I remember a counselor in kind of talking through this, how we do so much to try and avoid pain and that most of our life is spent trying to avoid that type of situation for ourselves or to erase pain. And ultimately, that it's one of our life's greatest learning tools. Trying to avoid it means you're trying to actively avoid the lesson that is trying to be taught. Either take it to the very easy example, if you place your hand on the stove and it burns, you have now learned the lesson, don't do that. But in the same way, if you get involved with somebody that you're not supposed to be with, now you have to take on those lessons and really learn either the mistakes that you made in order to not make them the next time in the next relationship you have to be in. Because I think it's it's somewhat of an old adage that you rarely end up with the first person that you end up dating. But you also have to make some mistakes and learn from them. And I think more than anything, that's part of what all of this is about, is the importance of pain, grief, and loss in our lives as a teaching tool. But then also, now taking it to the end of the film and the conclusion, and again, spoilers for anybody else that hasn't seen it already, go and watch the film and then come back. But at the end, we end up repeating a lot of the same mistakes if we haven't learned those lessons. And by now forgetting all of that, they're willing to make those same mistakes, although they do have a little bit more with the tapes there as a guide tool to what things may become. But if we don't learn those lessons, we're often bound to repeat those mistakes. Like you say, it's it's only going to kind of get better with age with and, and our kind of experience and things that you can, like you said before, it's difficult maybe if you haven't experienced that to be able to, to understand it. And, and, and even when I first watched it, I definitely hadn't had that level of breakup, but it was it was really easy for me to empathize because I think it was really, really well done. And then, and then it changed for me when I'd had that kind of experience that going back to it, it probably at the time made it a more difficult watch, especially because I kind of knew what was coming as I was watching it. But yeah, it's really raw, really emotional, but actually really truthful. I think I I found it kind of very honest in, in the way that, the story is told because a lot of a lot of breakup movies they kind of 
exaggerate things and there are parts in it that that are probably exaggerated but it feels it feels real and that's the main thing yeah i love the fact that they use such a unique concept to emphasize certain portions of the themes that makes it not so procedural as you mentioned with some of these breakup films that they seem really okay you have to hit this note and this note and this note and it feels sometimes like an episode of csi rather than like trying to actually explore a breakup but dad any final thoughts before we turn the page being a python fan it always this almost reminded me of this the the two guy or the guy sitting around the the gentleman's club you know oh if only i had a cardboard box to live in breakups are i'm hurt so i'm going to try to hurt you worse than you hurt me and so that's what they all are is this cycle of trying to one up the insult or one up the pain. And you, when you're watching this, you see that so clearly how it's evolving. And you just want to say, stop, count to three, think of what you're going to say, and then don't say it. Because that's where these things accelerate. And I thought that the, the way that Kaufman wrote the script really emphasized that. Absolutely. All right, let's take it to best performance. Dad, what do you have down? Uh, Charlie Kaufman. I thought the screenplay itself was brilliant. I think that the screenplay is the star of this film. I would probably say so myself. I had them down as my best secondary performers. Did you have them down for anything, Joseph? Yeah, so I, I had Kaufman as um thing because, I mean, being a screenwriter, it'd be a bit bit of a shame if I didn't. But yeah, I think I, I think you're right. It's... It's not just he obviously got that idea from that that person, but the way in which it's executed is one hundred percent like the screenplay. It wouldn't be anything like it is without that. Yeah, certainly as somebody who's written some stuff, it's sometimes very easy to find premises. It's not easy to find all the stuff to fill in between. And I think this is wonderfully executed as far as the writing. I don't know if I appreciate the direction in a few of the the spots particularly with some of the way that i'll just say from the shaky cam type of thing at the beginning it feels a little dizzying and then there are some shots that look like they're home movies as opposed to something that's supposed to be cinematic quality but the shot composition i appreciated it's just i i would agree that in many ways the star of this is either the top two cast so you could go Jim Carrey you could go Kate Winslet and we're in this period right now with Kate Winslet where she's having I don't know if you could call it a renaissance again but this mirror of East Town period where she's like at the peak of pop culture again and it hasn't been that way for a while but you recognize going back through some of her filmography how extraordinarily good she is as well but I'll focus here because she was actually my best performer but we'll go back to the script here there's just certain subtleties in how the structure of it goes because this is somewhat of a love story told in reverse. And we've had that in different premises, but as the memories are getting erased, most recent to farthest back, you kind of realize, again, in the same way that Carrie does, that the further back you go, you remember all the good things at the beginning. And so now you want to hold on to certain things of that. Yeah, definitely. And the fact that there's... It's not like, for example, Memento, where it, it's kind of the entire film follows that 
that kind of narrative structure. But the the fact that there are two, if not three, kind of stories going on at the same time, one going chronologically, one going anti-chronologically, and just the fact that you're you're still able to to follow it, that it's not kind of so complicated that it's like, oh, where are we? Yeah, so I think that, yeah, the, the narrative structure is just wonderfully, wonderfully done. Because in some ways it's still like a, a generic general three-act structure, even though it's being told in reverse. And then there are just the subtle portions of this uh, when it comes to developing a relationship that if you didn't have something to draw upon, like the the orange sweatshirt, like that's just a small little throwaway in most things, but you emphasize it in, in kind of the way that almost a, it's poetic. And most people, when they're not great writers, would try and throw that away. That That's not an important piece of the thing or borrowing chicken, you know, that, that small little piece, but it's those small moments that end up making something more believable and real. And so I just appreciated that from that side of it. So I'll jump into then my best performer as, as Kate Winslet, and I kind of already went through some of that, but it's the way she's able to subtly, like there are certain scenes where I couldn't tell whether th- there's, a, what, is, what is the term? Like an all-knowing presence, especially in those last few scenes where she and Carrie are acting against each other in a lot of ways, but they'll act out the way the memory actually happened, and then they'll go extra out of the scene to basically, okay, now we have to hide or we have to change the memory or do these other things. And the way that they're subtly able to go from one thing to the next, especially when you look at the bookstore and then the scene in or on the beach there, or even the one with the pillow, where they just kind of are able to bat back and forth. And she does it so capably without it seeming like it's choppy or it's split up. It's just seamless. And you need somebody talented in order to be able to accomplish that without it again, seeming like it's it got a, a weird stop point in there. You know, it, I, I assumed when I started watching this, that since she won the Oscar, I would go, Oh, hands down. She had the, you know, was the best performer about her. I started going back through some of the performances she's given, you know, like example, even the reader, I thought she was much more uh, impactful and did a better job of acting in that film than this one. This one, she was good and she did have the nuances you've said, but I wouldn't rate this as one of her better performances. I think actually, and I'm going to give you my secondary performance right now, which is going to shock you. It's not. Which is Jim Carrey. I thought you'd actually go that way. Yes, because he was a really good actor when he stops acting like a buffoon. But, uh, and that's what I said. And and in fact, the director, I I saw a comment that the director, because he he was afraid of him going off and with his ad-libs and trying to be funny, that they kept him off, off balance constantly by... You know, he wouldn't say when they're going to start rolling the cameras. He would would yell cut, even though the rest of the actors would continue acting so that it would throw him off balance so that he couldn't feel comfortable enough to do a lot of ad libbing. That's interesting. I hadn't seen that in my research. But that, that is a different note, because I think he did a series of movies where he was more of the either the straight man or serious movies. And I think this is the, his most notable entry to that. It's one of the few times that I can think of him really breaking out as an actor as opposed to a comedian. I think that in retrospect, 
the Academy nominees would have given him much greater recognition if it wasn't for the fact that they're looking at this and going, oh, that's Ace Ventura. But he's got such a different feel to it. I, I, I think that maybe, but also that the Academy just simply gets stuff wrong all the time. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Joseph, what did you have down for secondary performance? So I think mine's going to be a surprise. Mark Ruffalo, I think he is under like underappreciated for this film. And like the way he carries himself and as a di- I've, I've done directing for like theater and things. I'm hoping to do some for film and just as a director, looking at the nuance of his performance and just these tiny little things. And like the fact that he's, when he's trying to get, Elijah Wood out of the out of the way, and just kind of stuff like that. I think he's really kind of central to the character, to, to the plot, and especially because he have his relationship with Mary, and kind of knowing that he knows what's happened as well. That it's kind of it, it just gives more depth to his character, but it is also really funny as well. Like when they get high and he starts giggling. But um, a, a fact as well that you didn't mention earlier is the the scene where they're dancing above Jim Carrey on the bed, like in their underwear, basically was completely ad-libbed. It wasn't planned and they just kind of, just kind of did it. But that kind of really works in the, in that setting as well, because you've got that link between you going from one thing to that juxtaposition, sorry, between what Jim Carrey's character is going through, what Joel's going through, and then what they're going through on, on the outside externally. But it's really, really interesting. But yeah, Mark Ruffalo, I think, massively underrated actor for me. Wisconsin's own. Yes. In fact, one of the things I noted about that character is I've known several of those guys. They're the guys that are in love with this woman from afar. She has this baggage because there's somebody that she really loves more, but he's beaten her down or hurt her. And he comes in to rescue and he's just happy to be, I'll know I'll never be the love that you really want but you're so good, I'll put up with it. And I'm willing to compromise my own integrity to some extent and be kind of a a puppy dog just to get you. And I've known so many of these guys that you just want to almost go, you're kind of disrespecting yourself a bit at times here, aren't you? But I thought he played that character real well. The the climactic scene between he and Kirsten Dunst with the car was... You know, it was basically him hat in hand. You know, he's come to realize that he wanted this to happen, but it was just too much for him to overcome. Uh, I was going to say him scaring Joel and Mary when they walked down the hall that time where he makes them jump. Um, Michelle Gondry actually told him to do it at different times every time so they, and from different places. So that genuinely, every, every take, they didn't really know where he was going to be, and it became, and it actually was a a jump. I think, unfortunately, Ruffalo is kind of pigeonholed for being the Hulk at this point. But this is classic Ruffalo in his real element, where he's not a caricature at times, and there's a certain meekness and earnestness to every one of his performances that you can definitely see in it. So I. I can appreciate how well he's able to transform himself into that type of character. 
there's two other films as well that I would use to debate that. Okay. Um, Dark Water. Okay, yeah, that's not one I've seen, but I know why you're referring to it. Yeah, he has to be more of the front and center lawyer type. Foxcatcher. Okay. Oh, yeah. He is unrecognizable in Foxcatcher. That's true, but so is, for that matter, Steve Carell, who I think is also... Yeah, Steve Carell as well, like, incredible. Yeah, I I think there was that period right after Foxcatcher in the big short where I thought Steve Carell really transformed himself into being a completely different type of actor. Especially with how much I love, like, 40-year-old virgin. But... Hmm. Uh, anyway, all right. So let's go to most charismatic. Uh, Joseph, what did you have down? Most charismatic, I would say, Clem, Kate Winslet. I think she's just like, again, like like you've said with with that character, but being in arty circles and stuff, and always doing theatre. And I've known hundreds of Clems, and kind of had dealings relationship wise with a few, and it kind of made it makes so much sense because you've got that kind of she she's just trying to kind of have fun and not really kind of take anything seriously but then always there's the one guy that kind of wants to take it and it's it's never going to end well when you've got two completely opposing forces but yeah i think the way in which she just embodies that role and and you can tell she's having a lot of fun as well. Like I, I watched a um or read an interview this week in preparation where she said that it was like the most fun like fun she's ever had with a role. Which I can understand because she's just she's just a character and it's one of them like archetypal kind of Ramona Flowers kind of thing. But actually she does it really well without it being too cliched that you kind of you kind of feel like that's who she is rather than this is a construct that the TV studio, that the film studio has made and I'm playing the kooky character. You kind of get, she's that good that you kind of go, okay, I'll go with you. Yeah. And I'm maybe circling back a little bit, um, probably could have made a better transition, but I think one of the reasons I like the Mark Ruffalo character is simply because I often end up being that type of character. And that's why my most charismatic ended up being Kirsten Dunst, who I thought was kind of forgettable for about the first half of the movie. But by the time you get that kind of conclusion and she feels hurt and wounded that I very much want to gravitate towards that person to, okay, here's some hot tea in a blanket. Let's make you feel better. And so for that reason, I just gravitate towards her character. Dad, what was your most charismatic? Well, I had a tie between Kate Winslet and Kirsten Dunst, and the reason is, is I will tell you right up front, I have fallen in love with both of these women at various times from their film roles. I fell in love with Kate Winslet watching Titanic because she was the epitome of what I find attractive a lot of times in a woman, which is she was independent, she was bright, she was articulate, and she was a little feisty. And every role she's had has come across almost the same way. She takes on roles that I think to some extent reflect not her entire personality, but aspects of her personality. Because I've seen enough interviews where she's do- that she's done that there are bits and pieces of her really in each role. As far as Kristen Dunst, I think she's way underappreciated. And I'm drawing a blank as to the name of the film she did with Orlando Bloom, where he goes back to his dad's oh, yeah. hometown. 
Elizabeth, Elizabeth Town. Elizabeth Town. I thought she was phenomenal in that film. That's where I really fell in love with her because she was the friend that uh, a guy needs sometimes beyond just the person in your relationship, the girlfriend. Sometimes you just need somebody who's there to support you. And that aspect of it was what really attracted me. So I think both of them have such great screen presence and are just wonderful. And so that I couldn't pick. I'm in love with both of them yet. I didn't feel like I should play favorites. Fair enough. Now, we can cut over to best scene. I'll just say, other than when the title cards come up, most of this film kind of blends together. And I don't think there tends to be a a set scene, more or less, because basically you're telling the two stories at the same time. And unless you're separating where you're in Joel's mind or you're outside of his body, that that might be the scene different. But we'll try our best to at least get a, a couple of compact pieces here. So let's just start with the opening. I'll nominate that one to kick us off. But that opening 18 minutes where you're not sure how all of this fits into the story yet. And I say this as a first time viewer. I think if I went back and had a repeat viewing, you can say more of the artistry behind it. But that opening 18 minute sequence is why exactly I would never show this to my mother or my sisters, because they'd be asking the questions, well, what the hell happened? Why is this all of a sudden like, because they jump in time and they don't tell you and you're supposed to just play along with it and then figure it out as the movie goes on. And the people that ask questions instead of letting the movie tell you the answers are the people that annoy me in movies, which is why I have such a problem with my sister and my mother when I'm watching certain films. But this is really that jump when you get that first introduction because he talks about Naomi. And so the first thought running through my mind was, okay, is Naomi the person he's trying to forget? And so this is his move on person, Clementine. Okay, that's how, and she's going to support him through this exercise. Nope, that's not how it is. This is after his memory's been wiped and now we're figuring the pieces out. So I think that scene or that first 18 minutes really takes on a new life as the film goes along. And I can't think of too many other introductions that become richer as you watch the rest of the movie. Definitely. Like I I agree with that. The, um, the best thing as well is when you watch it again and you go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, I think See, it's, it's different best scene and favorite scene. I, I, I kind of struggle with this because it's a lot of them. I think best, I'm going to, because I didn't think either of you would look at look at it, at it this way, but technically. So the um, the scene where Joel has uh, become six, like he's trying to escape and he's uh, under the table and they've done that all with false perce- perception, that none of that was at all uh, CGI. They just had a giant table and like sloping kind of set. I just think when I watched it, the first thing I thought was, well, that's obviously CGI. But then every time I watch it since, it's like, that's just brilliantly done. And it's realistically, it's, it's, it's old style filmmaking, but it's done really well. And it and it's done kind of not over, not overtly. So it's not like, it still has that like twinge of realism. Yeah, I did appreciate that. And I had that down as another potential nominee is them trying to hide within his childhood memories. And I think you explore more of the character of Joel as to some childhood traumas that you can relate to, particularly that I, I think is he smashing a bird. I never could quite 
see exactly what he's what he's doing but you know the childhood bullies and that sort of thing and all, all the other small nuances of his character that reveal more of his personal side as you go along but i i too was struck by when you watch it it seems so odd that jim carrey is the full actor because it's not like the kid all the time but him is like so much smaller he can't reach the freezer and he's doing all of these other physical activities but kate winslet's also in the full body and how they were able to do some of the camera tricks with that is is really noticeable and I, I really can't explain exactly how they do it because I'm not a uh, cinematographer. Well, going back to the opening scene, I, the opening scene was basically the entirety of that scene was to cause you to have as much confusion at that moment in time as as Jim Carrey was having, coming out of this, having his memory erased. So I, ha- I had that as one of my scenes. But then when you finally realize later that that, scene was you know took place currently and you now have the the time when they're together later in the film and they have the meeting on the train again and it suddenly dawns on you you go ah now it all makes sense and the only other time i've had that experience was when and which is why one of the few times i agree with the academy that Anthony Hopkins deserved the Academy Award after watching The Father because it was that same methodology, which is to create a a sense of confusion, have the reveal as to what the basis is so that the picture unwinds in front of you, not while you're watching it, but at the end Uh, of a very cool method, I, I thought, of like an epiphany that you have at the end where Instead of having the film revealed as you're going through, it's more like the end, the entire previous hour and a half is suddenly made clear. I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but this is a remaining question that I had that I'm just going to do now. When we talk about the opening and he comes out and he has that big dent in the side of his car, when we're talking about certain memories having to do with his girlfriend and then there's, he's supposed to bring all of those in and they're supposed to get rid of them. That's a pretty big one that they missed. But as the story gets unfolded through the fight and all the other stuff that goes along with it, you kind of understand where that kind of takes place in the time loop. And it it does, it's one of those things that's out of the ordinary because they focus on it in that opening that doesn't necessarily make sense until it makes sense. And again, that's the mastery of how it's written. I don't know if it's necessarily in how it's staged. No. All right. Uh, next scene, Dad, I think you're up. Well, I had the scene in uh, in the apartment between Mary and Howard. And <sighs> the power of attraction exceeds the memories. No matter how many memories you try to fade out, there are certain people that evoke an emotional response in you just by seeing them. She has no memory of Howard at this point in time, but she still knows deep inside of her that she loves him and can't. And so the memories, losing the memories do not erode the emotion completely. And I thought that was a very telling sign because memories fade, but for whatever reason, the emotions that were uh, caused by those memories do not. Yeah, one of the things that, and again, this is a later part enhancing that part in how you watched it after the fact, but when you listen back to her tape and she's just describing that little nuance of, I was attracted to you right away, but 
you never really came after me and didn't know. And there was this just great chemistry immediately between us. And I, I immediately put it on my own person because apparently I'm one of the most dense people when it comes to people being attracted to me that I've never realized there have been a score of different people that have said, Oh yeah, I was really into you, but you just never picked up on it. And the, the subtleties of all I of can that. Attest. Yeah, I know you've been in. Yeah, I can attest to that because the number of times that, you know, like waitresses will be flirting with you and you have, you're just, oblivious. I'm, I'm absolutely clueless, but just that subtlety with the, the level of attraction just kind of spoke to me in that scene that she clearly has a, unspoken ability to be just charismatically attracted to him with no reason whatsoever. And if the memory is not there or the pain's not there to learn or unlearn how not to be in love with him, that, that you'd make that same mistake. And I think that's reflected both in that relationship, but as well as in the Clementine and Joel thing. And that, that again, goes back to what is this about? I think we sometimes have to make certain mistakes because we're destined to learn certain lessons. Yeah, I think just the idea of people being drawn together, that, that it was inevitable, really, that, that they would see each other again. And even if they saw each other, that kind of normally you might be like, oh, well, two people on a train, are they really, even if they're on the same train, are they going to interact? But it's just the idea that, that they had to, that it was just, yeah, like I say, inevitable. Well, and it begs the question, and it's another one of my unanswerable questions at the end here, or remaining ones. If you thought it was the best to erase her memory so that she could forget you, why do you allow her to keep working for you? You're in such close proximity, it only is going to beg trouble. It's, you want to both be separate, but you want to keep them close. I, I boy, knowing some a, firsthand experiences it, it, no, with that. No, you can't explain a, it. But I've seen I've seen a lot of people in similar situations, and I just I, I remembered and I thought about that too. As my first girlfriend, we broke up and about I don't know it was like first semester, halfway through the second semester, she started like showing up at places I were was and just staring at me like, you know. And the other guys are going, "Hey, she wants you back," and uh, the memory was is. No, get away from me. You are a psycho bitch. <laughs> so I had that memory to draw from. Without exploring too much of that, I think that's a good place to end that story. I'll nominate the ending here quick. I just, again, and I, I think it draws upon in some of the same things that I, I just said with uh, Howard and Mary, that at the end they kind of agree to try again. Yes, they do have the tapes as a learning experience to maybe not make the same mistakes or the rest of it, but there are certain ones where even at the time you may know it's a mistake, but you make it anyway because you know that this is a mistake that you have to make and learn from. And so I think from that standpoint, just as an underrated lesson, value, quality, whatever you want to say, theme, that spoke to me a bit. Sorry, did you say... Did you say that Joel and Clem were gonna start? We're gonna start again. Well, yeah, I think that's implied by the ending. Hmm. See, that's interesting because I think it's implied that they're not going to. Oh, I thought it was that way too. And 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 to be honest, I've seen a lot of situations. I used to say, "Oh, it's 
you know, when I'd see guys who'd break up with a girl and then go back together, and I'd always use the comment, if you pull the carton of milk out and you taste that it's sour, putting it back in the refrigerator is not going to necessarily fix the problem. But uh, unlike a carton of milk, which you can't change the content of relationships, you do have the ability to do. And so I think that they realized, or that was my feeling anyway, that they realized that there was enough good in the relationship that they wanted those memories back and they were willing to risk the negative as a result. But why did you think that they didn't want to be together? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have thought of it that way. I'm trying to find in the script when they're in the, when she kind of comes back to his apartment and they kind of say, okay. And I can't remember the, the line before, but it's like, I think it's, she'll, she's like, saying, she'll I'm, it's all the things she had in that speech from the bookstore. I'm a complicated high maintenance person and you're never going to change that. And I am going to end up finding you boring and all the, and it's just okay. Yeah, so maybe that maybe that's just my personal kind of take on it is that he's just going, okay, we'll just leave it then, and maybe that's me projecting on, on onto Joel. Maybe I think this may end up being a uh, rabbit or duck or a old woman versus young woman situation. You only see the picture one way until it's revealed to be the other one. So that's that's interesting. I, I I'd have to go back and just watch that one scene and and kind of the reaction of that because. I don't know. They seemed too happy at the end for that. Okay. To, for it to be, because if it had gone the way that you said, I would have thought they would have been more melancholic. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah. I thought they were crying. I thought they were really upset. Okay. Again, I guess maybe I'll have to go back and rewatch them, but uh, any other nominees for scenes? So for the most indelible, I had one that we've already discussed briefly, but that scene with with the bird going back, it's just like and and the way that it was filmed as well is that they had Kate and uh, Jim Carrey were stood on set and doing the lines rather than what them filming it and then them doing it as a voiceover. They did it kind of in situ, so they were re- reacting as as they saw the actors kind of doing it. And I think again, like like you've already said, it shows a lot about. Jim Carrey's character that he was bullied to into essentially killing a bird and it was just kind of quite harrowing but also the the music I think as well that we're not really like talked about that much that I think I think the sound design and, and the music in this film is is beautiful and it it hits the right notes at the right times but yeah definitely that like I can kind of I've seen it that much that I hear him hitting the the bird and I can hear the music that's playing in the background and it's just and and also the fact that it turns into like the house kind of goes turns decrepit and just that a lot of the stuff in in them dream well in the memories sequences as things are breaking down and it's showing it physically breaking down I think is is a really wonderful bit of visual storytelling. Yeah. There's something almost homage like in it um, with how that's breaking down to kind of like back to the future and the memory disappearing, that sort of thing. But dad, did you have any other scenes? Well, no, uh, not as far as scenes, my favorite scene. I, I wrote it down as trying again, the closing, 
And that was, you know, maybe maybe it's it's the pessimist versus the optimist mentality. Maybe if you're a hopeless romantic, you see them go to try again. And if you're more of a realist about things, you see that they're ending it. I don't know. I mean, but I that was my understanding. And I I was encouraged by their willingness to take the plunge again. But uh, so that was my favorite scene. Most indelible. I will never get a, the visual of Mark Ruffalo and his tidy whiteies out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed the Kirsten Dunst in her bikini and or, I mean, her panties and bra tremendously. But uh, then looking over at Ruffalo with that little, you know, that little twist he's doing, and I, I will not forget that anytime soon. Yeah, l- let's move on from that quickly. I also had the ending as favorite and most indelible to me because, again with that and i've said it on multiple occasions there are things or decisions in my life that i'm able to step back enough and say yeah this is probably a mistake but it's a mistake that i know i have to make because i have to learn something from this and you kind of go into it with that attitude and hopefully you'll be okay on the back end it hasn't always worked out as smoothly as i would have liked but it's definitely something that i can appreciate personally So uh, this is our normal uh, breaking point for the first half. Uh, We will take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, is there anybody we need to remember this week? Yes, a few people. Kevin Clark, who was in Schoolhouse Rock as one of the young... Oh, no, 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 no. Very different. Schoolhouse Rock as the cartoon. Yes, School of Rock, excuse me. The Jack Black film. Um, Yes, Jack Black film. He played the teen drummer in the movie um he actually decided he liked drumming better than acting so that was the only film he did so he was in several bands afterwards unfortunately was tragically killed while riding his bike home uh in north chicago Uh, i would also say though that i would love to see tenacious d's version of i'm just a bill just personally (laughs) okay anyway continue actor robert hogan who was a longtime tv actor he did a few bit parts in various movies, but he's prominent, predominantly known for television. Uh, Laverne and Shirley, he had a reoccurring character. He was on MASH. If you are fans, or if you are uh, fans of MASH, you might remember the scene where the uh, pilot would uh, launch a syringe and catch it in an orange. That pilot was Robert Hogan. He also was on Hogan's Heroes. His best friend, and I believe he was the best man in his wedding, was one of the co-creators of Hogan's Heroes and named the Robert Crane character from Hogan's Heroes, Robert Crane or Robert Hogan, in honor of him. B.J. Thomas, singer-songwriter, won an Oscar for uh, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is the distinction of being the very first film that I ever saw in a theater made my mother take me because I was into really big on cowboys and uh, the Wild West at the time. And so I really wanted to see this. It was like, uh, I must have been about six or seven. You know, we've been looking for stories of things that I didn't know about you. That is one. Yep. It was just me and my mom went to the Ellis Theater. I take that back. It was the Majestic in Beloit, Wisconsin. So... And then Joe Laura, who was a longtime character actor in several low-budget films, Break, or Lima, Breaking the Silence, American Cyborg, Operation Delta Force 4. I didn't see that, but I also didn't see Operation Delta Force 1, 2, and 3. 
and Tarzan. No, but I have a feeling that a couple of those might show up on our guest podcast at one time or another. Uh, I do also want to mention Robert Hogan. Uh, if you're not familiar with older TV and might have seen something a little bit newer, I know this is going back at least a good decade already, but The Wire was another one of his uh, top credits. And given that that's still rated by most critics as one of the top five shows of all time, you might know him a little bit more from that. I didn't want to miss uh, that particular thing. But with that, let's get into best funniest lines. There aren't really many funny lines in this movie. I don't think that it was that kind of movie, but let's let our guest take the first crack. What do you want to nominate? So best line is is a bit of a cop-out because Charlie Kaufman didn't write it, but it's the quote that has the, the, the title of the film in by Alexander Pope. The... Um, how lovely are the blame, blameless festivals lot, the world forgetting by the world forgot, the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, each prayer accepted, each wish resigned. It's just gorgeous and perfectly sums up kind of the film and, and the idea of how, how, how great would it be if we didn't have any of these awful memories and things to have to go through. But, like you, like we've said all the way through, maybe it's a lesson that we need to learn, and and it will make us better in the future. But yeah, there aren't many funny lines. <laughs> I was trying to think of one, but I will certainly say that we could probably do at least a good hour on just that line alone. If you wanted to dig into the poetry, uh, I don't think we have time to annoy the entire uh, listening audience by trying to dig into all of that. But definitely one. And I'll transition into the other one that uh, is often used, but again, Kaufman didn't write, but that is constantly quoted throughout this. Mary, blessed are the forgetful, for they get the better even of their blunders. So we got those two at least in and out of the way. Dad, what's your first nominee? Uh, What every awkward male has said at one point in time in his life, why do I always fall in love with every woman I see that shows me the least bit of attention? (laughs) <laughs> yeah that was a close second for me i think that that hurt when i first heard it yeah i've been there on several nights uh the next one i had down is something that seems incredibly self-aware that to have the character say it not once but at least twice in in the span of the movie and at two very important times i think it took me out of it because I wish uh, some of the women that I've been involved with had this much um, self-awareness at times, but it's, it hit me with a lot of honesty. Too many guys think I'm a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive, but I'm just a fucked up girl. Who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Absolutely. Dad, did you have any others? Clementine. Sometimes I think people don't understand how lonely it is to be a kid. Like you don't matter. So I'm eight, and I have uh, this these toys, these dolls. My favorite is this ugly girl doll I called Clementine. And I kept yelling at her, you can't be ugly. Be pretty, weirdo. Like, if I can transform her, I would magically change too. Yeah, certainly. Constantly talking isn't necessarily communicating. A lesser than I didn't learn for the first 25 years of my life. I think I'm still learning that. People have to share things. 
that's what intimacy is. Clementine. Again, very self-aware and somewhat prophetic. I guess you could go with the ending. I can't see anything I don't like about you, but you will. You will think of things, and I'll get bored with you and feel trapped because that's what happens with me. Okay. Okay. I've just realized what my favorite line is, and I've just remembered it. Sand is overrated. (laughs) Because it's like the perfect antithesis to Hayden Christensen in Star Wars. It's like, if you're going to hate on sand, that's how you do it. Not, I hate sand. It's coarse. Like, they're like, it's just tiny little rocks. <laughs> Brilliant. Also, who who is overrating sand? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. But when well, who we wants to go to a beach all the time? Every... Oh, let's go to the beach because you want sand in your underwear, Dad. In America, is you're you're sounding crusty. It, it's worth it because it, there's sun, but in the UK, it's always grey. The, the 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 water is freezing. Like I've never understood the beach, and like even the sand is grey here. That it's just, I get it when it's like Florida or something, but but not not the north of England. Fair enough. All right. Uh, Dad, did you have any others? Drink up, young man. It'll make the whole seduction part less repugnant. Oh, what I would have given for a woman to say that to me. And that moment aside, let's move to the Stanley rubric. All right. I have a way of capping off several of these sections just today. I, I don't know what it is. All right. So, again... The last few weeks, I've been kind of dividing up the uh, both impact, significance, and legacy, at least for how I'm looking at the category, between the industry itself and then the general audience. So on the first five points from the industry, I think the industry has a high regard for Kaufman. Even now, I remember the uh, bit, gosh, was it earlier this year, or maybe it was last year. I don't know. It's all run together with quarantine and everything else that's been going on. But when the Kaufman movie came out, there was a lot of buzz within the industry. I don't think there was anything if you didn't listen to a bunch of movie podcasters. Like, people out on the street are not clamoring to go see that because it it doesn't have any explosions or, you know, this grandiose love story all the time. It's more high-concept art-type films. And this might be the one that's most generally appealing, easiest access of any of the films of his that I've seen to date, which is why I think, uh, at least gross-wise, it's uh, his highest grossing film uh, that I could tell. So I think, the again, the industry has a high appreciation. He won an Oscar for this one. Kate Winslet was nominated, and she didn't win, but she got it for the reader. So I think there is some. I'll give it maybe about a four on that scale out of five, the audience, I would have normally given it a one. Cause again, this, it didn't have a lot of immediate impact. I'll give it a two though, out of five, because I think it's got more of a cult following after the fact. So all told, I'll give it a six right now out of 10 for legacy when you add that all up. But dad, what do you have? I had for the critics score, I gave it a 4.5 because I think the critics have loved this film from early on. And they've talked it up. And if the legacy, I gave a three. 
And if you would have asked me about the legacy of this about uh, three years ago, I would have given it a one because I forgot about it. I didn't know anybody talking about it. But I'm finding that people are talking about this film a lot more. And those who will mention it, it's always, oh, I love that film. Oh, that's one of my favorites. So I think this is going to ultimately be a film that's going to have a greater audience in the future than it did when it was released and as it, it does now. Because the concepts are fairly timeless. The story itself and the methodologies are not out of date. You know, I think it just picks up momentum as time goes by. So I so the total for me was 7.5, but I think if we looked at this in another year, we'd probably be at an 8 or 8.5 for me, based on what I'm seeing. Okay. Joseph, what do you head down? Um, for, for what, sorry? Legacy. For Legacy? Yeah. I, I had similar to yourself, actually, that it was really high regarded in critically, but wasn't. Um, and I actually was one less on the... Um, on the on the audience side, I kind of put put it as a one. So I, I had a five in in total. But I think I think you are right with the cult following. Yeah, the only reason I gave it a little bit higher on Legacy, and I think the scores will be more reflective when we get to Impact Significance, because again, I think this has more of a legacy the longer it's come out that the tale and people talking about it, word of mouth is eventually passed around to see people watch this than there was at the time it was released. And there are several films that are of that regard. But I just, for this particular one, I didn't want to necessarily give it a one because, like yourself, I've had uh, several people that at least had wanted to come on as a guest that had suggested this one. It is a movie that has popped up multiple times in trying to do the show. And I think at some point, it'll probably pop up again on this particular podcast. But what, one, of the things, one of the things I wanted to comment was we were talking about legacy in the public view. I try to talk to people that I run into and we're talking about my, about the podcast and I'll ask them about the next movie. I, I get the feeling sometimes that this movie is like a Rorschach test because I'll have people say they love the movie, but it's a different reason or different meaning that they're driving from it uh, on almost every occasion. Everybody talks about it differently. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. I I could see that, but again, I think it would take a while for us to dig into how it is exactly that way. Uh, all right, so since my scores were very similar-esque in, I guess, impact significance, I'm going to go with a 4.5 on the industry. I'll go with a 1 on the um, initial impact audience-wise, so for a overall 5.5. Again, it's very similar. I think the critics hailed it a little bit more initially because it was fresh and exciting from Kaufman where some of his more modern movies I think have kind of dipped a little bit on as far as critic circles not necessarily where he is not seen in some ways as a genius uh, I think he's thought of in a similar regard to somebody like a Kenneth Lonergan in the way he, that he writes but a lot of his stuff is very dour but artsy but I think again you have to take back that at the time this wasn't a highly grossing movie and really if it hadn't been nominated for some oscars i think this might be somewhat of a lost film so the industry kind of kept it alive but i'll end up at a 5.5 dad what'd you have down 
because it won the Oscar for screenplay and nomination for Winslet. And uh, I went again with a 7.5 when I was scoring it out because I think this gained a following. I mean, there was a certain aspect. I think Kate Winslet was kind of passed over as being somebody who was not the kind of a lightweight after Titanic, you know, because it was kind of a popular movie. She wasn't, you know, she didn't really have to act too much and whatever. So I think she was just in some really odd film choices at that time. You know, like Holy Smoke is kind of an odd film. Well, and sometimes it's a matter of what you're offered because she was like the third choice for this part. And in fact, uh, after she was cast, the studio tried to fire her and bring in another actress, which they never named, but uh, who was more well-known at the time. But I think this kind of cemented her and gave her opportunities to be a little more selective. And I think it's had a significant, more significant impact on her career since that time. And so that's why I went with a little bit higher for that reason. I honestly think, and this is about the same time as that, but something like The Holiday probably gives her a little bit more commercial appeal in trying to do that thing. Especially, we've seen enough actors, actresses that have a really high grossing movie and are not able to continue that. Even Leo's films didn't really become a new version of Leo until about this period too. Like he had that um, period after Titanic as well, where either he wasn't in anything big or just wasn't the same celebrity status. So I can't falter for that. It's hard to live up to being in the number one grossing movie of all time at the time for like a good decade. But uh, was 4.5 your total score, or was that just one of the things? Because I, I think I missed it. was 7.5 for the total score. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I had that right. All right. Uh, Joseph, what did you have down? Um, yeah, so I had seven um, in total. I think I mean, it's difficult because I think you've already gone through everything as as, as to why. Um, but, yeah, I think I think you are right that it is going to keep, keep coming up and – and we'll have that that quality to it that is universal. So it's not not too much of its time. I forgot to give the average there for Legacy between the three of us. That was a 6.17. Uh, the average out for this category then would be a 6.67 between the three of us. Novelty. Joseph, we'll give you first crack on this one. Uh, this is kind of a category that we haven't defined as well as some of the other ones, but I think it's somewhat of an important one when you talk about greatness. What'd you have down? So I, I had it as a nine, but that was just based on the kind of the the points that you sent through that I think it pushes boundaries, not just kind of with the script, but with the way it's filmed, like we were talking about kind of a lot of old style filmmaking to make sure that it's um, kind of not too CGI heavy, the, the narrative structure and the... And, and the way the story is told is really innovative. I think it's really hard to, like, you're never going to get a story similar to this, I think. Like, I can't think of anything else that has been close to it, but I also struggle giving anything a 10. So it's kind of, I think it's not completely out there because it's still, like, got narrative and it's got story and you can still follow it. But, yeah, I think for me it's a 9. Yeah, I think the only 10 we've ever given in novelty is for Some Like It Hot, 
And I think that has a lot to do not only with the story in the way it's told, but also in telling a subject material that was way ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah. And in the context. Yeah. Yeah. With the context, I think that added several layers. But I agree that it's hard to get a 10. This is an extremely creative movie as far as I'm concerned. The only drawback, and I ended up going with a nine as well, is I have to take a point off just because this reminded me so much of It's a Wonderful Life in the the way that the story is structured in uh, remembrance or forgetting or the wishes you have when you're in a really painful, grieving situation that you're trying to almost bargain but it does it in such a unique way that I still have to give it very high points. I'm just going to take some small fractions off because it's kind of dealing with similar subject material. Not not a whole lot. But again, I ended up in a 9 as well. Dad, what'd you have down? Uh, I had actually a 9.5. And I agreed with you because I was trying to think. What this film does is it starts three quarters of the way through the movie. And then tells the first two-fourths of the movie and then finishes it. And you meant, and I was trying to think of another film that did this, and now you've mentioned It's a Wonderful Life, and actually that's very similarly structured, but that's about the only one. I could not think of a film where it was a combination of film noir, science fiction, and rom-com. And, you know, and it blends it together. There's nothing about this that you go, if you don't, if you don't like... Uh, science fiction, you're going to hate this film because it's too science fiction-y. It's not cheesy like some of the rom-coms are. It's not overly dark and sinister like a film noir. So it, it kind of blended them and came out with a a light version of three different genres. And so I, I thought that was extremely novel. Uh, or And the concept itself was very... Uh, novel, and that's why I went with the higher score. I, I, I just couldn't think of a film off the top of my head, and I thought about it for a while, that I thought he used different aspects of filmmaking and of storytelling in as creative a way as this did. There are not a lot of movies before the early 90s that really told structurally out of order that I can immediately think of. The only one that I could maybe compare it to, and I think it's not a great like for like with, with the way you said it, three quarters of the way into the film. The only one I can think of is maybe Pulp Fiction, but that's grasping at it a little bit just because there's some elements of that that are technically after when it ends, but the ending is still somewhat in, if you look at it in sequence, is about three quarters of the way through-ish. It's somewhere in that that vicinity. Uh, but the average then for those three between us is 9.17. Classicness. This is probably our most difficult category on a regular basis. But, Dad, let's have you kick it off because you seem to have some of the most nuance when it comes to this category. Well, again, I start by looking. I start always at a five, and then I go up or down about cringe worthiness. And there wasn't much. I mean, there's the the worst thing is, quite frankly, is that Howard and uh, Patrick are both slime. And uh, in the Me Too generation, you know, taking advantage of your work position in order to seduce one of your clients is more than a bit cheap. But 
it had a sense of realism to it that uh, you can't just write off because I'm sure there are those people that use those situations to their advantage. And there are tons of bosses who have taken advantage of their staff members uh, for their own personal gratification. And I, I mean, we were just discussing this in Wisconsin. There wasn't an ethics rule for lawyers to have sex with their clients until 1995 because it was so prevalent. Wow. Every time they'd bring it up, the divorce lawyers would all go, no, 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 it's not necessary. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so I gave it a 9.5. And I think that's why this film is gaining in popularity, is because I think it has more poignancy today than it did when it was released. All right. I, I'm still weighing out my thoughts on this one completely, but I'll let Joseph kind of go and then I'll, I'll weigh in. Cause I, I have a few more nitpicks when it comes to that. Okay. I, I had similar, I had, I had a nine. When I was going through my scores, I, I was kind of worried that you guys would just think, well, I was going to give really high for everything, but so I'm trying to kind of justify it. But yeah, like, like you've already said that it, it is, has that aspect of timelessness and that, anyone and and like i said before about the things that i find great about films is when you can watch something decades after it was made but you still get everything that you need to from it because of the way in which it's done and that actually it's about more than just that era it's about something that is about humanity really that in a hundred years you would be able to watch something and still take something from it. And I think that's what makes it kind of a classic is that, for example, um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is like the only quote-unquote Western really that I love. And and I think I will lo- like people will still love it however many years in the future. All right. So... I'm going to do one nitpick that has no effect on my score whatsoever. I grew up in this period of time. Joseph and I are very similarly aged. Was it yeah. weird seeing uh, cassette tapes used so prominently throughout the entire <laughs> film as far as the tech goes? Like, I'm just waiting for one of them to pull out a uh, dialer or a, a flip phone and just age this movie completely. But that was just something that kept taking me out of the film occasionally and much in the same way that if I go back and watch either the wire or the Sopranos, like you see them still using the, the uh, corded phones and all that type of stuff as prominent set pieces in those. Well, that's the thing. It was 2004 and even, even in 2004 cassette tapes and stuff weren't widely used. Right. Certainly not here. And I, I think that was a, an intentional choice by the filmmakers because it it's it's got that tangibility and that kind of physical memory that they that they have rather than it just being like an mp3 like it was like like sort of how else would you do it that they've got an ipod that they've kind of downloaded it to it's just got that kind of physical aspect to it yeah certainly again it didn't take any points off of it it was just something no, I kind no, of no yeah yeah no you're right the, the one thing, and I think you hit one of the two big problems I had in this one from a classicness standpoint with Wilkinson's character and his position of power in this moment of, a, we often talk about Me Too in the context of now, and 
that's one of the places that this that particular thing hasn't aged because again with the open-ended question of why does he uh, have her continue working for him when the position's already there not to mention that the whole thing was to repair his relationship with his wife who clearly knew about the affair why would she allow him to keep working with her that doesn't make sense to me from narrative structure but you both missed one big thing to me and that's the elijah wood character he is so fucking creepy throughout this entire film. Like, you know, the and how much of a throwaway, the stealing the panties and the other thing. But I do want to ask a question because I'm either confused or missed it. When they're talking about when they had visited her the week before, I, I think I almost picked up, but I'm not quite certain. When they talk about, did he have sex with her? Because if that's the case, there's a prominent thing that they kind of only imply, never show, of him raping her during the course of this memory wiping that adds a full layer of that that just seems terrifying to me in a way that I, I don't think, because now you're you're talking about something way different, but maybe it's something that I either missed or uh, thought was a part of things, but isn't necessarily. So somebody correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on that. I I did not I did not pick up on that. I, I commented that I thought he was creepy or that he was slime um, for that very reason, and I, that was one of the reasons why I didn't give it more, uh, more than or give it a ten because was because of that situation. But I know that he I don't know if he was during the memory erase or if it was after. But I know that you know the implication is is that there was a sexual relationship. But whatever it was, it was enough to have creeped her out because she suddenly and very deliberately broke it off with him very quickly. Yeah, I I don't think that it was whilst she was in that kind of dream state. I think he's taken the information that she's given and used that to his advantage to get her outside of that context. Well, and that's... Still problematic by itself, but I know that they talked about it. Again, I'd have to watch it back just to make sure, and I probably will here shortly afterward. But there's a quick succession when he's first talking to Ruffalo while they're in um, Jim Carrey's apartment. And he's talking about them with Kate Winslet's character the, or the week before. And there's some mention of sex, and then there's some comment, and again, maybe I wasn't either picking up on the commentary or whatever else, but there's a mention of unconsciousness. So that's the only reason that the implication seems burrowed in my mind at the moment, but I'll have to verify to make sure. Even so, here's the other part of the Elijah Wood character that bothers me, is that she's creeped out at some point because he's clearly taking things that have meaningfulness or value and being stalkery, but they don't really explain other than she just wants away from him why the sudden change of heart? Like, there's no seminal moment that you can point to. Yes, there's the scene with them out on the lake in the or on the ice, but I, again, that doesn't. I don't understand the ending for his character. It just seems kind of like we put him in there as a device to move the plot forward in one way or another, but we don't know what to do with him to finish that off and give it that extra semblance of meaning for a character that I find the most problematic in this movie. It's really the one caveat that I have. That being said, I would agree with both of you that a lot of the themes in here 
seem very timeless and human. And if uh, I'm going to come off of this, because uh, we've said previously that I started an eight. I know, Dad, you said last week that you started a five. I'm going to come down. I'm going to start at a seven for most of these. Because of the Elijah Wood character, I, I have to kind of at least take off a couple of points. I will add one in because, again, I, I liked the humanness, the honesty, all the things that you guys have been mentioning for the last hour in this. So I'll come back up, but it still ends at a six for me, which I know adjusts it slightly, but I just have a lot of problems when it comes to that character and how it hit ends for him. So let me add that up quickly. Would you have uh, raised your points a little higher if they panned down and Elijah Woods had hairy feet? Fuck off. <laughs> that ends as a 8.17 for me or excuse me between the three of us on an average so rewatchability you know you've said already in the course of this this might be the film you've watched the most often joseph but uh, what's your rewatchability score i think i may be burying the lead <laughs> so it might be surprising because i've tried to look at it objectively rather than Watch because otherwise it'd be a ten. I think again, like I try, like maybe not specifically start at a five and then dig, but I think I've done a similar thing and I've kind of gone to a seven because the way in which it's done, I think you can watch it again, but I can't imagine people what like other than me that is probably like I must just have some kind of masochistic thing to, to want to cry all the time um, but I don't think everyone's quite as sad as me like I have uh, the the best note I've ever been given for any of my scripts was my fiance read one and she went oh my god nobody dies in this one well done and it was kind of like so I've, I've got a little bit of a, a morbid kind of sensibility but yes yeah, so I think I tried to not grade it on on how I how I see it it is a tough watch. Like it's not, it's not a laugh a minute. You have to be in that kind of in that in that right right headspace to be able to appreciate it. But maybe mine's slightly high. I don't know. All right, Dad. How is this on your comfort food scale? Okay, so I started this on Wednesday. I was having a bad day. It was kind of just like nothing seemed to be going right. I was like feeling kind of burned out. So I decided to put this movie on and watch and at least get a good start of it so that we were, I was ready for Saturday so I wasn't, you know, procrastinating. I got about halfway through and I'm like, oh my God, I'm emotionally and physically drained. Wow. <laughs> um, I was not expecting anything to remind me of every horrible experience in my uh, relationships and they've all come pouring back. I keep having visions of the few girlfriends I've had as well as other problems in my life. And I'm going, oh. But then on Friday afternoon, I was having a day where I wasn't getting much done. So I decided, well, screw it. So I'll just watch the film in my office. And, and uh, so I did. And the second half had a much more encouraging tone because it was much more a triumph of emotion as opposed to a reliving of horror. You got to plow through and do both. The problem I have is, is I am not one who likes to relive 
uh, painful events very often because they're they come up enough as it is and that I don't enjoy them. There are certain things that I swear by reading the DSM-5 would constitute PTSD that I continually relive. More keeping to myself because discussing that even it makes it worse. So on the comfort food level, yes, I'm going to watch this film again. I've got to because I think it would be the second watch is going to be better and more entertaining. Um, but this is a film to watch um, with a group of people that you that you're friends with or related to who have never seen it. Um, so it's going to be like a, a five year cycle for me. Uh, I might watch it again real quick. So to that extent, I went with a three simply because. I got to be in the right frame of mind to watch this again. I, I just, otherwise it's just going to throw me into a loop and I have enough problems with emotions and mood uh, already. So maybe I, you know, maybe Norman Vincent Peale and uh, the power of positive thinking is more my speed, but uh, that's where I came from. Certainly. And I have many of the same feelings. I usually like you start as a five and it's either a run-of-the-mill movie that I could give or take as to whether I'm going to rewatch it or not. This is definitely a rewatchable, but it's a hard-to-digest movie, and it's one that you you have to watch with complete focus. Like, put the phone in the, the other room. Don't try and, like, have any distractions type of thing to be able to pick up on a lot of the nuances. Because I think that in the reviewing portion of things or the rewatch type of thing you're going to want to pick up on some other small pieces because you know most of where the story is going by that point. It's the other things that you can now find within the movie that are going to be the enjoyable part of the experience and how everything blends together. So I'm kind of stuck. I ended up on a four because it's hard to digest. It's not a run-of-the-mill film. I I almost want to go with five because uh, this will be a rewatchable movie, but again you really need to be in the right frame of mind. So it's going to be the exact right circumstance to rewatch. So I'll end up with a four. And then the split between the three of us ends up being 4.67. So then for Rotten Tomato users, this has an audience score of 94. So averaging that out with the 93 from Google users, 9.35. And that adds up to a total score of 44.73. Currently, that would put it in between Pretty Woman and The Magnificent Seven, a couple of movies we've just recently done on the list. So uh, we've gotten to a couple of my remaining questions. I don't know if either of you had any. I think I'm forgetting my last one because I didn't have it written down. There was something that occurred to me, but uh, let's cut to you guys. Do you have any other I guess, remaining questions other than the big one we kind of generally already discussed is, do they actually get back together? And I I do think that's an unanswerable one because it is the duck rabbit, old woman, young woman type of way you look at it. Yeah, I I don't have any other other questions than that. I have one. What happened to Howard? His secretary steals his files and sends them back to his patients, violating every rule of patient confidentiality. His wife leaves him, and his mistress wants nothing to do with him. I have a a feeling that either he ends up in some sort of just bizarre situation, or he walks a long distance off a very short pier, because he's got nothing left. 
And so to that extent, those who try to manipulate emotion and memory are the ones who end up ultimately becoming the failures in the world and society. And so that to me was a point I thought I would make as far as a remaining question. No, it is open-ended. I agree with the choice not to necessarily focus on him and his demise because you already have seen the ending of that and it would only just put another sour note on the end of this being more of a tragedy than maybe the the open-ended nature of Joel and Clementine's relationship. But I, I have a feeling he would go the way of the warden in Shawshank. <laughs> yeah. So I cannot remember any other remaining question I have, but before we uh, close up this week, Joseph, any other things you would like to plug for yourself? Just the podcasts, really. Club of our Climax, we're on... Uh... Instagram, um, so find us on there. We do weekly uh, quizzes to see if you can guess what our film is that we're discussing. So I post uh, three kind of pictures, basically, as clues. You guys aren't allowed to uh, to do this week because I've already told you as <laughs> what, what it is. Um, but yeah, and then we so essentially, if anybody DMs us the right answer, then we will do a shout out on the podcast for their podcast or their instagram or or whatever but yeah every sunday 10 a.m uk time bst um you can find it on anchor apple Podcasts, spotify wherever basically just like you said earlier just google it you'll find us all right and i will include it in the show notes in case anyone is interested in picking that up we uh appreciate any other lovers of movie podcast uh dad you had a final note uh before we go this week since this whole podcast is more or less a uh, monument to love and relationships, I happened to just look up the Pope, uh, Alexander Pope poem that this title was taken from. And I just want to read the last line because I think it's poignant for those of us going forward. Such if there be who love so long so well, let him our sad, our tender story tell. The well-sung woes will soothe my pensive ghosts. He best can paint them and feel them most. Great way to end the show. Thanks for sharing that. Joseph, thank you for being on. We appreciated having you. Uh, I know I, you. I enjoyed it. I can't necessarily speak for Dana, but he usually oh, enjoys yes. most of the guests that we have on. So, again, thank you very much, and you're welcome it's back. It's enjoyable to hear someone other than him. <laughs> Says a father to his son. Yeah. But uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be covering The Great Dictator with returning guest Sarah Duncan. And it's our first Charlie Chaplin movie. You won't want to miss that one. You can find it either by searching it in Google or going on realgood.com. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D.com. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at tj3duncan or at danawduncan. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 